The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Whenever you're away uh, for something like a study sabbatical or even a week's vacation, uh, and you come back, you know that as much as you enjoyed the blessings that that period of time gave you, you also know that upon your return, the next couple of weeks are going to contain appointments and responsibilities that you didn't do during those weeks that you were away, and that they kind of fill up and the opportunity to engage in it. And so I fully realize that that's the case for me. And um, But one of the other challenges when you do expositional preaching, that is preaching that is consecutively oriented in the Word of God, that we work um, through verses and texts of Scripture, is that um, there is this great burden I have, and I think it's right to have, and that is the fact that God's Word needs to be in context, and therefore it can't just be, you can't just take a passage out and make it say something you want it to say. You're to, what the Bible calls exposition or exegesis. What you want to avoid is eisegesis, that is reading what you want to into the text, but what we want to do is to bring from the text that which God has ordained for us to understand. Well, that means not only the text, but the context of the text must be understood. <clears throat> then when you do <clears throat> a topical expositional series that we have done, that we've been doing, foundations of the faith from the sanctities that are revealed in the book of Genesis, we've got to make sure these things are connected. And so when I left my last study, we're, we're into our final sanctity that we're going to study from Genesis, and that's the sanctity of the family. And as we are looking at biblical parenting uh, by examining the sanctity of family, as we are working our way through that and understanding it, um, I, I brought us uh, what I said to you. I don't know whether you remember. It's been almost two months now. Uh, but what I said to you is that there are three key texts of scriptures that we're going to look at. And we got started into one of them, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, we're also going to take a look at, that's pretty easy to remember, New Testament, Ephesians 6, and 1 through 4, Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to look at verses uh, 1 through 5 in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So there are going to be three texts that we're going to look at to draw out these principles of parenting and then perhaps some best practices sprinkled in along the way as we work our way through it. 
But let me remind you that the series was in response to what is happening in the evangelical church. And that are the inroads of progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity, which is cut from the same bolt of cloth as liberal Christianity from the 19th and 20th century. Progressive that came to and utterly destroyed the, the Protestant church offering to rescue the Protestant church, the mainline Protestant church, it actually destroyed it. And uh, and then cut from the same bolt of cloth is today's progressive Christianity, which has come again with a benign offer to save the church from irrelevance and uh, and in order to recast it, to reconstruct its mission and therefore its message. And so but and so while they're cut from the same bolt of cloth, their issues aren't the same. Uh, in the uh, in liberal Christianity, or which is no Christianity, it's an enemy of Christianity. Is uh, is the fact that um, is the fact that you are denying the inerrancy of Scripture. In progressive Christianity, you're denying the sufficiency of Scripture. And what happens in liberal Christianity was a denial of historical biblical Christianity. What happens in progressive Christianity? And here's what you'll hear: I am deconstructing my faith. It's not an outright denial. It is an act of, quote, deconstructing. Well, that then goes hand in glove. Do you all remember in the Bible that uh, in the last, that the Bible informs us that there is, in fact, uh, two beasts that serve Satan in this world, uh, the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. And historically throughout the ages, the beast of the, the beast of the, of the sea, of course, is tyrannical government that declares itself as God and overextends its authority, uh, to be God and be the savior of humanity in the midst of its chaos. And there is the beast of the land that becomes its servant. And that, sir, that beast of the land is the apostate church. And throughout the ages, we have seen this time and time again of this marriage of the state and the church and the church there to do in order to have its seat of power becomes a servant to the state and all of its power and authority. That's what happens throughout the ages and it's happening right now. This progressive secular movement focused upon self defining freedom as anarchy. Every man does what's right in his own eyes, is being supported by the progressive Christianity movement within the evangelical church. And that progressive Christianity movement also um, is, is also beginning, uh, also is uh, serving to remove the moorings of life that are revealed in God's word. So that's very in a very short as short as I can get it why I wanted to go back to Genesis the book of origins to give us the origins of the pillars of life the foundations of the faith. We looked at the sanctity of creation, the sanctity of divine revelation. We looked at the sanctity of God. We looked at the sanctity of um, the sanctity of grace and the covenant of grace. We looked at the sanctity of government. That why is government in place? And maybe if I could just stop right here. Here is something that we need, to, particularly as we look at the family. 
And the, the family is God's, the, the family, including marriage, is God's foundational institution from creation. Government is God's necessary institution in light of the fall and sin. What is the, what is the, what is the, um, what is the symbol of the power and authority of government in the Bible? What, what does Paul refer to that the government, the civil magistrate, has authority to wield what? The sword. It has a life and death power. That's not given to the family. Um, you can't take your kids out. Uh, if they're disobeying you, you're just not allowed to do that. Uh, we have something called a rod and we have, a, and, and the church, we don't have the power of the sword. We got the power of the towel. We're servants is what we are. And we don't have that. But so the, the, um, but the state is the power of the sword. Where is government first seen? Government that is the wielding of the sword in response to sin in order to restrain man's sin and exhibit God's patience with man is first wielded not by an emperor, not by a president, not by a government, but by the angels themselves. As they with the sword guard the way to the tree of life as Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. It is that sword that now is put in the hands of the government that exists as a necessary institution because of sin. So you've got marriage and the family as foundational because of creation. You've got the government as necessary because of the fall. And then what do you have? You have the church as the response and the institution foundational to God's work of redemption. When Jesus comes into the world, he comes to what? Redeem us from our sin. And he goes to the cross to do what? Three things. He goes to the cross, according to 1 John, to defeat Satan and his works. Secondly, he goes to the cross to save his people from their sins. I'm not giving these in list of priority, just listing them for you. So he goes to the cross to destroy Satan and his works, death, grave, all of that dominion of darkness. He has defeated Satan. He has not destroyed it, but he has defeated it. And he has gone to the cross to save his people from their sins. Thirdly, he goes to the cross to purchase with his own blood his church. Elders, Paul tells the elders at Ephesus, here's your primary duty, shepherd the church, which God purchased, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And there is this glorious statement that we find in Ephesians 5 as we learn about marriage. Husbands, love your wife as the bridegroom, Christ, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her.
So we have the institution of creation, marriage and family, the institute of the fall, which is government, to can't redeem but can restrain sin, and then the instrument of redemption, and that is Christ, the, the institution of redemption, and that is Christ's church that is carrying the gospel message until Christ comes again and fulfilling the great commission and magnifying the great commandment. So having looked at these various sanctities, we said the last one, we want to look at marriage, which we did. Now we want to look at the family. And we want to take a look at what the family is supposed to be and to do. It's a great burden on my heart. It's also a matter of the brokenness of my heart, just to be perfectly honest with you. Because I know so many of our families, so many of our young couples did not get the benefit of what some of us who are older are. And uh, um, yeah, I was reminded of that this morning. Dr. Crabendam was with us, who, was, um, a, who has been my entire life a father in the faith. And I didn't realize it. Uh, I, I didn't realize it, but um, uh, how old he had gotten. <laughs> and uh, because he told me himself. I just always see him as he is. I mean, for me, he's always the guy I met in 1971 and never changes in my eyes. And I said to him today, I said, well, I said, Dr. Cravendam, how are you feeling? He said, I'm as healthy as a horse, an 86-year-old horse. And uh, I'm not sure how healthy an 86-year-old horse is, but I'm as healthy as a horse. So here, but those of us who are older, there, there's so much I learned from my family. Not it wasn't perfect, but there was so much I learned about what a dad is in terms of biblical masculinity downloaded into daddyhood. And what is a woman and what is a wife and what is a mother by just watching my mother. And, and, and um, again, not with perfection, but just as constant um, signposts that point to the things that I was being taught uh, growing up from the Bible about family and marriage and all of those things. And, and my heart breaks because we don't really have that as much today as we used to. The deconstruction is working. The progressive secular movement wants to deconstruct just like the progressive Christian movement, again, which is not Christian. In fact, it's an enemy of Christianity, and it is a, it is a um, insidious enemy because it uses our terms but not our dictionary. And it is an insidious one. But in the progressive secular world, there is the deconstruction of the family. Have any of you noticed it? Have you noticed how they get you to laugh in sitcoms about sexual perversity and sexual promiscuity? Because laughter is an instrument in the entertainment world and in drama so that the unthinkable becomes thinkable. If it's laughable, it can become thinkable. And once it becomes thinkable, then it can become acceptable. And once it becomes acceptable, then it can become doable. And then it is built into the life of the culture. And we see all of these quote-unquote modern family being taught, being uh, given to our children. I am going to, another reason this is so important to me, and, but I can't, honestly, I feel like a failure because I can't communicate 
even to God's people, how important this is. I, I, I falter in being able to do it, as is just obvious even now tonight. Um, because I know that that progressive secular movement, unconfronted but abetted by progressive Christianity within the church, is aimed at your children, is aimed at our children. You know, we brought in this wonderful ministry to help us create a safe environment for our children here from all of these, this uh, sexual predatorial behavior. And I remember going through the training and there was, I just, I couldn't believe what I was learning. Uh, it was just eye-opening to me. I mean, I had always heard about how the children are groomed by predators. What I hadn't learned is how the predators groom the gatekeepers to the children. That's what I hadn't learned. And that was eye-opening to me. It was just astonishing to learn what I learned. Now, I'm about to say something that most of you think I have gone nuts, and, or at least you've already thought that. This confirms it for you. When I see what's done on television, movies, and songs, and what is being displayed, I see that as predat I see it for what I believe it is. It is the grooming of our children by the predators of the movements of the sexual revolution of sexual promiscuity and perversion. They're grooming our children. And they do it through an iPhone. They do it through an iPad. They do it in the entertainment world. There is no movie. There is no book. There is no painting. There is no song that is not communicating a worldview. They are all communicating something. And have we begun the work of parenting so that our children can see it because of a heart change in the gospel and can filter it and confront it and deal with it because they have a world and life view that is faithful to God's word. Do they have that? Well, they're not going to have it without parents. And they're not going to have it without a church that in its discipleship brings gospel truth to parenting. And does the discipling of it. It's just not going to happen. That's the whole concept behind this. And I know it is absolutely crucial because um, the, the frog in the kettle is working. They put the frog in the water and just turn up the temperature slowly until it's cooked alive and it doesn't even know it. And so it is, even with the evangelical church being cooked alive in the culture. And what is the answer? The answer is the inoculation of the truth of God's Word in the presence of the Holy Spirit through discipleship, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That includes what does it mean to be a daddy? What does it mean to be a mama? What does it mean to be a child in relationship to parents? And how is that built upon a marriage? All of those things are so crucial 
to embrace and to engage. But we're the frogs. We somehow think this isn't happening. We somehow think if we don't think about it, it's not going to happen to my family. I just read another, in fact, we, did, we just dealt with this on one of our 10-minute Today in Perspective programs. The last 62 mass shooting perpetrators, all, they have one thing in common. They all came from a broken home. And in that broken home, 90% were fatherless. And out of the chaos and confusion of that comes this striking out in irrational violence. Now we're responsible for what we do, but look at the soil from which it's growing. And what is happening within the church of Christ? How can we address these issues biblically? Now, Harry, why do you say that? I say that because here's the danger. When things begin to crumble and disintegrate from the culture because of the removal of common grace, then sometimes the church in its response over-responds. And it then begins to make its endeavors idolatry. The family is not the Savior. The family is not God. The family is an institution God has ordained. The family doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But he teaches us how to live in a family that exalts the Savior and engages in the parenting that necessary to bring children to them, to this Savior. And what is the objective of Christian parenting? So those are the things that we're just simply trying to lay down the tracks to understand. Uh, can you imagine the confusion of our I just sitting out there listening to my son? I know I was uh, un- wrongly distracted as I was as he was leading us in prayer. And I don't know, did you notice he prayed for me? Did y'all notice that? Hello. Yeah, you notice that? Did you notice how he stumbled when he prayed for me? I saw it. I know him. I know him. he never talks like that. He stumbled right then. He I could tell. And Lord be with he didn't know whether to say dad, daddy, pastor reader, and he went to doctor reader. <laughs> That's where he ended up at that point. Doctor reader. So we have all of these relationships within our family that are built and that sustain us and that we work our way through and work our way with each other and around each other. And how do we, how do we accomplish that? What do we do and how do we approach it? Well, Ephesians 6 gives us some basic uh, contours, and I already started this with you, but was not able to finish it. So let me just give you a couple of thoughts from it. If you'll look with me in Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4, and, um, and yes, I'm going to be timely tonight. 
I am not going to do the Max Bunn sermon tonight. In fact, I'm five minutes over uh, from where Max, uh, Max ended us. But we are going to be timely tonight. Would you look with me in Ephesians chapter 6? I do want to thank Max and the others who so wonderfully and faithfully ministered, uh, not only on the Lord's Day in the various classes, but also on Sunday evening. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Notice, not it will produce great children. That's a consequence. This is right. It is faithful to God's word. Honor your father and mother. How do you honor your father and mother during childhood? You do that through obedience. And then he says, and then he goes to the commandment that it is rooted in that makes it right. Honor your father and mother. So what does it mean to honor your father and mother in the days of childhood? Now, this is not after your marriage. After your marriage, you've left and cleft. So you are not directly under God's leadership through your parents. You still have a relationship with them. You still honor them. But in childhood, the honoring is manifested in obedience. Now, now, how do you honor your father and mother and why? Well, here's a reminder. Here's a motivation. This is the first commandment that comes with a promise. In other words, in other words, have, um, have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself any graven images. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. And then you get to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother that it may be well for you in the land. It's the first one that attaches a beneficial consequence to the lifestyle that is being commanded. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Then he flips from the children to the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, raise them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Nurture them, discipline them, create the environment whereby that's the discipline of the Lord, the environment, the instruction, that's the content of your parenting. And yes, it's fathers and mothers. The teaching of the mother is on her tongue as well. But the father is responsible. It's not, I'm going to go make money, you teach the kids. No, the father is responsible before the Lord in the teaching of the children in the context of a deeply intimate oneness of marriage. And so that's what he is called to do and that's what he, that's what, and that's what the father is called to do and he's called to what? Not beat them down, not tear them down, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If you don't, what will happen? Interestingly, the absence of a hands-on father in parenting He says, open the door for the provocation of anger. I will refer you back to the statistic I just gave you. The broken marriages, families, and the overwhelming majority, the absent father. I remember Chuck Colson 
giving an illustration once about a way they said, you know, we just kind of stumbled on this evangelistic opportunity in the prisons. He said, we decided on Mother's Day to offer to every prisoner that came to the service, we offered them a free Mother's Day card to send out to their, to send out to their, uh, uh, to their mothers. And we would provide the stamp as well. He said, the crowd was overwhelming. He said, man, this is great. He said, you know, next month, uh, we're coming up on Father's Day. Let's do it again for Father's Day. Father's Day, nobody came. So Chuck said they put a team together to find out why did you have such an overwhelming response at Mother's Day and a paltry, insignificant response on Father's Day. And he said the message was consistent. He said, after talking to four or five guys, we quit. He said, let me give you the gist of it. When we said, why didn't you come to get the Father's Day card to send to him? And the answer was, send him a card. Number one, I don't know him. Number two, if I did, I'd probably kill him. He's never had anything to do with my life. And I was a throwaway. And it was interesting how universal that response was throughout the prison population. Now, you can thank the Lord for the government. The government did a study on this. The study cost $29 million. The basic finding came back and was read on the floor of Congress. We have found out, now notice the politically correct language. We have discovered through this survey a significant uh, a, a significant uh, factor that children seem to do better when they grow up in a home with two adult persons committed to them. No, they can't bring themselves to say a father and a mother. You know, I think... I could have saved the government $29 million on that one. That wouldn't have been hard at all. The reason you don't have children till Genesis 4 is because you don't have marriage until Genesis 3. In fact, I believe God embraces the song we used to sing in the first and second grade. Um, what was it? I can't... Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'm just trying to remember it. Uh, bingo! I knew Jim would have it for me. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? The baby carriage. The order is appropriate. That is the order. The commitment, the relationship covenantally, and then the blessing of children. That's the order that God has put into place. Well, guess what? It's right here in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 give us a gospel distillation around a marvelous phrase that Paul loves. It's called, in Christ. If you ever want shorthand for the gospel, here it is. Union with Christ. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And that is the mystery Revealed. That is the hope of glory. Right with God 
and God right within us. We have this intimate, secured, sanctified relationship through the atoning work of Christ on the cross and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And for three chapters, he uses that phrase 28 times in the beloved, in Christ, Christ in you. He uses it 28 times. Then he turns to the Christian life in chapter 4. And when he gets to chapter 4, he says, Therefore, in light of this in Christ, and Christ is in you, in light of this glorious triune gospel, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that has saved you, in light of all of this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your call. Not a manner worthy to be called, we can't, but a manner worthy of your calling. And then he lays out the Christian life. Put off, put on, put off, put on. Don't steal, go to work and give. Don't lie, speak truth in love. He goes on and on, putting off, putting on, putting off, putting on. Then he goes to relationships. He first of all gives the church in worship. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Letting the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Speaking, that's what we just did. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Then he moves from the church to marriage. From the institution of redemption to the institution of creation. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, lead your wives as a servant. Love your wives sacrificially. Wives, you're the helper completer. You don't compete with him. You submit. You come alongside of him. You are the completer and you respect him. And not only do you respect him, you complete him in this embrace of him in submission. That first wife came from the side of Adam because that's where she fits. And that's the closest to his heart. And then in this marriage, now we're ready to go from Ephesians 5, 22 through the end of the chapter. And now we're ready to go to parenting in Ephesians 6. There's a message that's there for us in terms of the very context of all of this before the Lord and in the Lord. Well, given, given the fact that part, that the parenting is in the spiritual, is in the physical provision and nurturing and the spiritual development of the child in the hands and the stewardship. And by the way, don't let me, I can't leave this. I love covenant theology. I don't parent hoping I'm good enough for God to be at work in the lives of my children. I don't parent to get a promise and the attention of God. I've already got the promise from God as a believer. 
I will be a God to you and to your children after you. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You shall be saved, you and your household. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So as we physically are providing and protecting and nurturing and feeding them and exercising them and getting their rest and getting their uh, their exercise and all of those things and then spiritually doing the work of evangelism and discipleship in their life with a with a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting effort at parenting that's gospel-saturated as we're doing that in their life. The, now he directs us as to what we are doing. Don't you love the psalmist? Which is the third text I'm going to talk to you about. But I want to anticipate it. Blessed are your children. They are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. You and I are raising our children to be arrows in the hands of the divine warrior, Christ. What a glorious stewardship is ours. Our children are not about us. And our children don't exist for us. And not only must marriage not become an idol, yet honored and sanctified. Family must not become an idol, yet honored and sanctified. Our children must not become an idol. But sanctified to the Lord. And we are stewards in our parenting of them. And as they progress through this, se- through the seasons of life, in this physical and spiritual maturity, there are seasons of our parenting as well. Now, I have no text except that I, I um, except anecdotally in looking at parenting throughout Scripture and then examining it in the lives of 40-plus years of pastoring. So let me give it to you as I see it. Here are the five seasons in the life of a parent as you parent your children. Number one, you start out, um, humanly speaking, in control. You, They are dependent upon you. So you start out in control. And... You begin to instruct them, not with suggestions, but with commands. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the way we're going to eat at a dinner table. Here's the way we're going to talk to each other in this home. Here are the ways that we are going to function. So you, you lay out the commands and with clarity. I'll just say a word here. When you have commands of what have to be done in the context of a family, Keep, keep them few, but keep them. Keep them few, but keep them. Then you start becoming a coach in the life of your child. As you're coaching them through their seasons of life, then you move to giving them counsel. Harry, when does all this take place? Well, I don't know about control and command, except that it lasts, it doesn't last very long. And then coaching takes over. 
And then pretty much as they move off, maybe not prior to marriage, as they move off out into the world, have their own apartment, go to college, uh, join the military, whatever it might be, might be, then you move into a counseling role in their life. And then particularly after marriage, you are then the ever-ready consultant. And you learn how not to intrude, but to always be there when they want to speak with you. Those are the parental seasons in life. What are some things that you and I, if we raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and do not do it in a way that provokes anger, now, by the way, that does not mean your child is always going to like you. So you have to give something up. Can I give it to you now? Your objective as a parent is not to be your child's friend. That is not your objective. If it is, you will be, you will not be a good parent. You've got to give that up. Can I give you a carrot at the end of that stick? <laughs> Here's the carrot. If you will give up your need to be their friend in order to be what they need, which is a parent, a father or a mother, there will come a day you will become best friends. That will come. And they will thank you for waiting for it. They will thank you for being their father and their mother, not their bud, but their father and their mother. And then as you're doing that, what you sometimes, and they're, and they're, they're going to get mad at you. What he is speaking of in this matter is do not create the anger that comes from a lack of affection, attention, and clarity. Confusion and chaos and absenteeism creates the anger of a life adrift. And so you're giving the anchors, you're giving the environment, the discipline, and the instruction of the Lord. You give it with, with control. You make sure the environment's in place. We've got a home. We've got food. We're providing. I'm there. I'm talking. You give commands with clarity and the consequences of a lack of obedience with clarity. And you learn how to affirm obedience and you learn how to correct appropriately, proportionately disobedience. Then you learn how to coach them through the decision-making portions of their life. I remember talking with one parent not long ago, and um, I've only got a, 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 just a minute to give you this last list, and then we'll close in prayer. But I remember talking with a, um, a parent not long ago, and it was, oh my goodness, I don't... I just don't think my son um, should be dating yet. And I said, well, how old is he? And they said, well, uh, he is a junior in high school. And I said, well, first of all, I'm not going to enter into the debate on courtship and dating. I've got my ideas on that. I'll, I'll cover that at another time. But in the context of, that, of the vocabulary that was being used, I said, well, that means... That means he's going to be going to college. When? Oh, in a year. So you want his first decision of what to do and who to do it with on a 
courting engagement or a date. You can call it whichever one you want that. You want that to happen 200 miles away from you or at your house? Where do you want it to happen? Coach him through this. Teach him through this. These are learning moments. These are learning moments where you can walk them through it and be there when they stub their toe or fall flat on their face. So you coach, then as they leave, you counsel, and then as they leave and cleave, they bec- you become the consultant. There are five things you must remember in parenting that are, pre- or that are presupposed in Ephesians 6. Here's the first one. Your child is not a blank tablet when they're born. They're born with a sin nature. Your children are born sinners. They have a sin nature. Don't you love it over here at the baptism? And I say the first vow. Do you acknowledge that your child is in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? In other words, do you acknowledge that your child is a depraved sinner? Do you acknowledge that? In other words, this covenant child is a covenant viper in diapers. They are born in rebellion against God. Do you acknowledge that? Realize your children are not starting in neutral. They're starting with a sin nature. But also realize you've got God's promises and God's precepts. God has made you the second, the second principle is God's promises and precepts that He has given to you as a believer in the family. God's work of redemption embraces the family. Let me go ahead and tell you where we're going to end. We're going to end in the Old Testament that anticipates the coming of Jesus. And it tells us that this Jesus will do great things. And one of them, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their home. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their home. And God's promises and precepts at work in the life of the parents and in the life of the child are true and amen in Christ. Number three, your objective is conversion. Your objective is conversion in the life of your... You have a heart focus. You're not trying to raise a Pharisee. Yes, you can do, you can do this and we're not going to do that. But what you're aiming at is not the external washing of the cup. You're aiming at what's filling the cup. You're aiming at the heart. Number four, your family needs to make use of your extended family. Your family needs to make use of your extended family. I love family meals. I love family time together. Immediate family and extended family. And I love families embedded in God's family. We, our family is in God's family, His church. And his family is in our family. Spiritual uncles and aunts, 
spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers are of inestimable value to me as a parent. I want my children exposed to them in the context of Christ's church. Fifthly, you have to have a God-centered approach to parenting, not a child-centered approach to family. I just said that your child, and I'm, I'm going to pray after this, we're done. So I just, I just said to you that your child is born with a what? Sin nature. What is a sin nature? It's all about me. And if your family revolves around them, guess what you did, just did? You reinforced the sin nature. That's what we just did. We love you. But this family doesn't revolve around you. Can I give you all an illustration of that in my life? I wish I could tell you it led to my salvation. It didn't, but it did get my attention. My dad was gone from home a lot during the spring because my dad was in um, minor league baseball. So he was gone for quite extended periods of time. I took advantage of that in causing great distress to my mother. And my dad would get home, and that means a trip up to the bedroom, and my dad had not heard you weren't supposed to use corporal punishment, and so I knew what was coming. I remember being in the ninth grade at that moment, and dad, I could look at him, and he said, son, uh, go get the, uh, go get the rod. So I went to get the rod, I brought it back, and he said, this is the last time. I'm tired of coming home and seeing your mother the way she is. And I'm not going to do it again. This is the last time. If you continue to do this, I have called the Stonewall Jackson Reformatory School. They have a place for you reserved. And that's where you're going. This home doesn't revolve around you. I loved your mother and I married her. And you are a blessing. And you are a blessing from that. But you will not destroy that. That was a that was a marvelous wake up call in my life. I wished I could tell you I got converted. I didn't, but I did get my I did get attention. They did get my attention. And I was I look back on it, one of the I, I that I've never forgotten that. I could tell it was out of love, but I could tell it was out of priorities, and I could tell I was not the center of this home. It was going to be the Lord and the priorities of life that he had established. I didn't on that day, but I have ever since then thanked the Lord that that was communicated to me. Now, try to find to do it a better way. But make sure your children know the home does not revolve around them. This home revolves around the Lord himself. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. We give you praise. We give you thanksgiving. Our God is glorious. Our God is great. Our God's grace is is marvelous. And in this day, without the cultural allies in place, help us in the body of Christ build families in and for Christ, based upon the promises, guided by your precepts, and seeing your glorious work in the lives of our children, for which there is no greater joy 
than to see our children walking in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.